Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. We are in a series right now called Talking Points. It's about how to um, meet each other in our differences and find some unity in our diversity, and that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. The goal of this series is to make us better. It's always the goal is to come and get better, to mature and to grow. And, you know, a lot of times I'll say something and somebody will say, Brett, you didn't go far enough. Well, what they're really saying is I, I, I didn't. I'm just assuming that when people come to listen to me speak, or when you come here, you're trying to grow and you're trying to mature. And I just assume that we all approach this from a, a standpoint and, an, and a, a, a viewpoint of, I want to mature. I want to get better. I want to grow. And so sometimes I may stop short and not say that, but just know that that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to get better. And this should be the safest place in the world to have the conversations we're having around some of what's going on politically in our world. I think it's, it's clear that this is a, a really important time in our nation's history. Every time an election cycle rolls around, there's always an opportunity for the church to become divided. And so we're trying to be proactive and take some steps to make sure that that does not happen to us and, and that we're, we're better for the people that are maybe leaning on us and looking to us for some leadership. So if you're a Christian... The tension for those of us who follow Jesus is, are you willing, and maybe the better question is, are you able, but are you willing to put your faith filter ahead of your political filter? That, that's really the question. Another way to say it is, are we willing to follow, be Jesus followers first and be Republicans or Democrats or Independents or Libertarians or whatever else kind of party you want to throw in there, Whig and Federalist or whatever, are you willing to be that second are you going to be a Jesus follower first? That's really what we're trying to get to. Are we willing to follow Jesus when following Jesus creates space between us and our political party? Are we willing to be a Jesus follower when, when following Jesus creates space between us and our favorite political candidate? Now, I'm not suggesting that you not be political. That's not at all what I'm suggesting. Uh, I think that there are certain people that are gifted in such a way that God calls them to be in politics. We've had people in this church that have run for and held political offices. I have voted for a lot of those people and supported them while they were in office, and I think that's a good thing, not a bad thing. And so if that's something that God ever calls you to do, I say go for it. We need more people, more Christian people in politics, not less. And so I encourage that. But what I am suggesting is that we should take what Jesus said last week seriously, that we should not allow our political culture to divide the church. Because the one thing that Jesus prayed for before he was crucified uh, was his body and his movement and his church, that it would not be divided, but that we would be one. Uh, his prayer that was, was that we would figure out a way to be divided, to disagree politically, to love unconditionally, and that we would pray for unity. Uh, in the first century, something happened that, that also happens today. In the first century, you had people that were coming up to Jesus and they were basically trying to get Jesus on their side. They wanted Jesus to declare himself and they were really hoping that Jesus would come down on their side. And that's not anything new. That still happens today. Everybody wants a piece of Jesus. Now, here's what I can tell you. If you gave me an assignment and the assignment was, Brett, I want you to write a sermon and I want you to write a sermon using the words of Jesus in scripture to support the Republican agenda and platform. I could do that. If you said, Brett, um, the assignment is I want you to take the words of Jesus and, uh, and the, the Bible and, and support a democratic 
platform. I could do that as well. And here's why I could do that. Because you can interpret the words of Jesus and you can interpret scripture a lot of different ways, right? And so everybody, that's what they do, especially when they put their political filter in front of their Jesus filter. It's a really important distinction because you have a worldview. And if you don't understand that everything you do first passes through your worldview, and many times what's happening today is the worldview is way more influenced by politics and culture than it is by Jesus. So by putting the Jesus filter first, then what we experience through our worldview, is it's going to have a better chance of being something that would line up with really what Jesus had to say. Because here's what we, we typically... A little, little poem for you. He's so red. He's so blue. Isn't it amazing how often he agrees with you, right? I mean, that's, you can find people that, that follow Jesus, that, that, that follow one particular political party or candidate, and, you know, they, they're, they believe in Jesus with their whole heart, but you'd say, I don't know how they believe in Jesus and believe that. And on the other side, they're looking at you saying, I don't know how in the world they can follow Jesus, and, and be a part of that political party. I don't know how they could do that. Um, the truth is both sides quote the Bible. The truth is both sides quote Jesus. And what's really funny to me, it's always funny in election cycle when politicians start quoting Jesus. That's always fun for me, uh, to hear them mangle the verses and take things out of context. What's really funny is that the sides a lot of times are using, oops, I spit. I should have my mask on. Sometimes I think we should coat the whole first row, you know, just put, put plastic over them. Um, but what's really funny to me is that a lot of times we're quote, they quote the same verses, you know, in support of whatever it is that they got going on. So the question is, can you put your Jesus filter in front of your faith filter, uh, you know, and, and in front of your, can you put your Jesus filter in front of your political filter? And that at times can be very difficult for us to do. There is, a, there is a, 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 a wonderful man. His name is Dr. Tony Evans. He is a black preacher. Uh, love listening to Tony Evans preach. He's a, an accomplished author. He's a, 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 a seminary professor, very educated man. Uh, I love Tony Evans. And he was in a seminary class one time teaching, and he kind of, you know, there's times when, when preachers, if they're, if they're a professor, they kind of leave professing behind and they start preaching. And Tony got to a place where he started preaching, and he said this, Jesus did not come to take sides, Jesus came to take over. I'm like, yeah, that's awesome. See, Jesus came to introduce the kingdom of God to earth, the values that would turn the world upside down. He came to teach people who had resources and money and, and, and privilege or power or anything else to influence them to take whatever resources they have and to take that and use it in the effort to help people who maybe don't have everything that everybody else has. That's, what, that's one of the things Jesus was trying to get us to see is, hey, there are people who don't have what you have. You need to help them. You need to, to do what you can to help them. And so uh, he came to bring a kingdom where the king would lay down his life for his subjects, not the other way around. The king does not demand that the subjects lay down his life for the king in our particular kingdom. In our kingdom, our king, Jesus, laid his life down for us. A kingdom that was so broad, so inclusive, that everyone was invited to participate in it. But for the most part, the kingdom of God will always, at some level, conflict with the ideas in the kingdoms of men. And the kingdom of God will always, in some way, conflict with your particular party, political party, and mine. 
So there's always going to be a tension. I've heard Andy Stanley say this many times. He, said, he taught me, he said, there's a difference between a problem and a tension. A problem is something you solve, okay? If you've got a problem, you can solve a problem. Tensions are not solved. Tensions are things that have to be managed. Tensions are things that you're going to have with you for a long, long time. And so this is one of those tensions that we have. Um, and that's why it would be foolish for us as a church to allow ourselves to become divided over something as temporary as our political views might be. Because at the end of the day, no political party is going to line up perfectly with the views and the words and the life of Jesus. And so it would be foolish for us to allow ourselves to be divided. We are kingdom people first and political people second. So today, here's the goal today. My goal is to work you through a four-part template to show you how we go from seeing where agreement uh, ends and where diverse opinions end. There's a point in this whole thing where we need to be together and we need to agree and we need to agree completely and as one body on certain things. And then you're going to see in the template there's a place where we step over the threshold and now we come into a place where we have varying and diverse opinions. <clears throat> so to start with, let's talk about the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul shows up in the pages of history as one who hates the church. He's persecuting the church. Paul is a brilliant man. He's an educated Pharisee, um, just a, an incredible, larger-than-life figure when he shows up on the, on the scene in, in Christianity. But he has an encounter with Christ, and after that encounter, he gives himself to Christ, and he, he, his whole life mission then is, is for the, the, uh, the promotion of Christ and the church. And Paul also has the, very dis, the, the distinction of being a Roman citizen. Um, a lot of advantages to, to God being able to use Paul the way he did. So the, the Apostle Paul wrote several letters in the New Testament, but two of them that I'm going to talk about today is the letter to the Christians at Corinth, which we would call Corinthians, and the letter that was written to the church at Galatia, which we would refer to <clears throat> as Galatians. And he uses a phrase, and, and I'm going to, th th this phrase is really the, the key to the whole message this morning, and I want you to be familiar with it. The, the phrase he uses is this, it's the law of Christ, the law of Christ. And so I want you to have a working understanding of what that means. Now that phrase, law of Christ, is Paul's shorthand for the new covenant command that Jesus would give. And we talk about this all the time. Jesus showed up and he said, guys, I'm not going to ask you to keep the 613 rules that you've been trying to keep. Okay, nobody can do that. Who can keep up with 613 different rules? I'm going to give you one new command, and I want you to try keeping up with that. And as you might expect, it's a very simple command. The things Jesus said were very simple. Notice I'm not saying easy, I'm saying simple. Simple to say, not necessarily simple to do. I've said this many times, you've probably heard me, following Jesus is the hardest thing I've ever tried to do in my life. To mold my will. And bend it to God's will is a very difficult thing for me, and I suspect a difficult thing for you to do as well. So it's not easy, but it's simple. And the simple command was, love one another. But not just love one another. There's a caveat that goes with it. The caveat is, as I have loved you. And then he said, by this, by this unique brand of love, 
Everyone will know that you are my disciples. So as people look on, the way you treat one another, they're going to see that you love each other the way I've loved you, and that's going to convince them that you are really true disciples. So Paul takes that idea and he pushes it as the uniting idea for all Jesus followers. And this phrase, the law of Christ, is the phrase that he keeps going back to. Now here's what he says to the the Christians living in Corinth. This is 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave. Now that's strong language because slaves were everywhere in Paul's day. You couldn't throw a rock and not hit a slave. They were everywhere. He says, though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. In other words, Paul says, I'm on a mission to win as many possible as I can win, and I'll do just about anything to do that. He goes on, to those not having the law, And by law, he means Torah, the law of Moses. And those, when he refers to those, he's referring to Gentiles, you and me, people who are not Jews. He says, to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. In other words, I became like Gentiles in order to reach Gentiles. That's the extreme to which Paul is willing to go to have influence on this group of people. And then he says, though I am not free from God's law. Now, if you're a Jew... And you hear Paul say that, you know, on the one hand, he's saying, I'm, I'm not under the law, but on the other hand, he's saying, I'm under the law. You're like, okay, what are you talking about, Paul? Which is it? And Paul would say, I'm still under God's authority. I'm just not under the Torah anymore. And then he tells us what law he is under. And that is when he refers to, he says, I am under Christ's law. I'm under Christ. I'm under Christ's authority. And that authority the law of Christ, he says, no longer am I under the law of Moses, but I'm still under God's authority because I'm under the law of Christ. And what is the law of Christ? You are to love one another as I have loved you. That's the law of Christ. Later in Galatians chapter 6, he says this, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. So when you see someone who is burdened, and burden means they, they carry a load. They, you know, they're slowed down. Their momentum is being stopped. They can't do what they want to do. And it, it might have to do with finances. It might have to do with a job. It might have to do with kids. It may have to do with a, a marriage that's having trouble. It might have to do with a really bad sickness. But when you encounter people with burdens, he says you are to carry one another's burdens. Preachers like to refer to this as one anothering, that we one another each other. You love each other. You care for each other. You forgive each other. You, you be thankful for one another. There's a lot of one anotherings. I think 53 or 56 or something like that in the New Testament. He says, you carry each other's burdens and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. You are to love one another as I have loved you. So when it comes to the concern of others and it concerns you and you act on it, you are fulfilling the law of Christ. So as Jesus followers, regardless of your political persuasion, if you follow Jesus, the law of Christ is your marching order, and the law of Christ should over time inform, as we grow and mature as Christians, it should inform our conscience, okay? So our conscience should be hardwired into the law of Christ so that when we do something that is contrary to the way Jesus loved us, it should bother us. It should ding our conscience when we do something that is contrary to the law of Christ. It should ding our conscience individually, and it should ding our conscience 
collectively, when we do something or we, if we looked up one day and realized, you know what, we've been doing this and this is offensive to, you know, this is disrespectful, this is, it should bother us when we do something that is not loving others as Christ has loved us. We should all be as a group, as a body of Christ, we should all be disturbed, irritated, and convicted by some of the same things. We should be disturbed, irritated, and convicted whenever we see injustice, when we see it in ourselves, when we see it someplace else, we should be disturbed, irritated, and convicted by it. And when we accidentally disrespect someone, if we say something that you know, comes out wrong or we say something that's uninformed, and can I just stop us for a minute, and can I just say this and get this off my chest? We have got to stop crucifying one another because somebody misspoke or said something wrong. Somebody says something wrong and we just trash them completely. Well, you know what? I say this all the time. Always give a public speaker grace because it's, this is not an easy thing. And you're talking on the fly and who knows what's going to come out of my mouth next. But we, 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 um, we're too hard on people. We, and, and instead of just trashing them when they say something wrong, get to know them. Understand why they would have said that. See if we can't retract them somehow and say, okay, I, think, I don't think you understand something here. But don't just trash them. I mean, why do, why do we do that? When we see somebody violating the law of Christ, it should, it should bother us collectively. It should bother us when we see it inside the church, and it should bother us when we see it outside the church as well. Now, when we see it and when we are bothered by it, if we are going to have a response to it, and this is critical. We need to take a measured response, which is not happening often today. Can we agree on that? There's a lot of things that are happening today where you would say the response is not a measured response. We have to be responsible. And we may see something that we don't like, and we may see something that we disagree with, and we may even want to speak into it. But be measured in your response. Our collective conscience, that thing that moves us to apology, that thing that moves us to action, is all tied into the idea that you are to love other people, respect other people as Christ has loved and respected you. That is the law of Christ, and that informs our conscience. That's why when things happen, we go, man, that's not right. That's the law of Christ talking. So Jesus would say, I want you to take your cue about how you treat each other from me. Because according to Jesus, if you want to set policy, the best policy is what's best for people. The best, the best ideas and the best things are whatever's best for people. Jesus would say that's what's best. So the law of Christ should inform our consciences. Now you've heard me say this several times in this series, and I'm going to say it again, and I don't back off of this one little bit, and even a staunch atheist, I think, would agree with this. Christianity, there's no other entity in the world that has had a greater impact on Western civilization and its development than Christianity. There's, there's not even a close second. I mean, Christianity has greatly influenced the culture that we have now in Western civilization. But once upon a time, all over the world, in every village, in every town, in every kingdom, it was self-evident, which means it was obvious, it was unquestioned, that some people should be owned and controlled by other people. The idea of slavery was so self-evident that it was not considered a moral issue, it was not a question. It was just the way of things. You just had some people that were slave owners, and you had some people that were slaves. In fact, in the 4th century B.C., 
Okay, so four centuries before Jesus shows up, there was a man named Aristotle. And Aristotle was a philosopher, and and a job of a philosopher is to make the world make sense, or at least a good philosopher, that's what he does. Um, Philosophy professors in colleges just confuse people. That's all they do, but but I digress. Um, A philosopher says, we're going to look at science, we're going to look at human behavior, we're going to bring everything under one roof and try to explain why things are the way they are and help it make sense. And so here's what Aristotle wrote, 4th century B.C., 400 years before Jesus, this is what he wrote. For that some should rule and others be ruled is a thing not necessary but expedient. From the hour of their birth, some are marked out for subjection, others for rule. The idea of doing without slavery is kind of like the idea of doing without the sun rising in the morning. You can't conceive of it. In Aristotle's day, he just, it was just a foregone conclusion. There are some people that are born to be slaves, and there are some people that are born to be slaveholders, and that's just the way it is, and nobody questions it, and it's not a matter of morality. And all of a sudden, uh, something different comes along. In the 4th century A.D., Christianity has taken hold of Rome now, and it started to influence Rome, the Roman Empire, and, and this guy named Augustine comes along, And this 4th century bishop named St. Augustine said this. No, slavery is not, uh, slavery is a sin issue. There's something wrong with the whole idea of slavery. And all of a sudden, a brand new idea is born of a brilliant man. And in a world where slavery was everywhere and just an accepted part of everyday life, Augustine said, slavery isn't expedient. And slavery isn't just a part of nature, slavery is, is sin, and we need to do something about it. And as early as the 4th century uh, A.D., Christians began seeing a discrepancy between the idea of slavery and their views about following Jesus. And the things they saw in the Bible about being made in, in, in the image of God didn't square with the idea of slavery. Here's another example for you about how Christianity has impacted Western civilization. Once upon a time, it was self-evident, which means it was unquestioned, that infanticide, or in in the Roman Empire, they referred to it as exposure. Infanticide was just a a way of, of, it was self-evident. Nobody questioned it. It wasn't a morality issue. And you're like, okay, what's infanticide? What what is exposure? So if if my wife and I are expecting, and um, she delivers a girl, and I wanted a boy, then I would, if I didn't want that little girl, I would pick her up, brand new baby, brand, brand new baby. I would take her outside the city wall uh, and I would leave her there. Or I would take her into the forest uh, a little ways and I would just put her on the ground and I would walk away and I would leave her. And nobody looked at me weird. Nobody said I was wrong for doing that. It was just accepted. It was self-evident. This is the way it is. There's no morality tied to it. He's not a bad guy because he did that. We just, we, we all do that. You know, if we don't like what we got, we, we all would do that. Um, uh, another reason that you might do that is because, um, you know, if I suspected that my wife had had an affair and she, this baby was going to be born to an illegitimate relationship, then I, could, I, I might take that baby and expose it and leave it outside the city wall or leave it in the forest. Or if the baby is born with a birth defect, and I didn't want to raise that baby. I would take it out and I would leave it in the forest. And they, they, they decided that they would let the fates handle it. It was, it was up to the fates. And there was no charge. Nobody was going to come get you or say you're a bad person. It's just the way things were. It was just self-evident. 
But Christians, from the very beginning, disagreed. Christians from the very beginning, Christians condemned infanticide and exposure. And from the very beginning, they would go out into the forests and they would go out into these places where they knew that people were leaving these these infant children, these newborns, and they were collecting them and they were bringing them into their home and they were taking care of them. And they were saying, hey, you know, we, they looked at it and they basically said, we're going to do, this is what love requires. Love requires that we, that we take care of these little babies. We can't let this go on. Now, now, why did they do that? Because the Old Testament didn't tell them to do that. And the New Testament didn't tell them to do that. So what compelled these believers in Jesus to go out into the forest and to go outside the city wall and find these newborn babies and bring them in and raise them on their meager incomes? And I'm telling you, this was not an easy thing for them to do. This is a sacrifice for them. What compelled them to do it? And do you know what drove that kind of behavior out of the Christians? Love required it. It was the law of Christ as they began to understand what it meant to be made in the image of God, and as they began to understand, you know what, God has done this for us. We are to love others as God has loved us. And by their way of thinking, we were like little babies and we were adopted into the family of God. And while we were still sinners, Christ gave his life for us. And what was a normal expected practice in the Roman Empire, Christians said, no, No, we're not going to let this happen. We'll take these children and we'll raise them up because it's not right that you would leave babies out and expose them like that. And as the Roman Empire's conscience begins to be affected by the teachings and the practices of Jesus and Christianity, by 318 A.D., Constantine has given his life, he's the Roman emperor, and he gives his life to Christ. And in 318, Emperor Constantine declared infanticide a crime. Now, why the change? Because suddenly it became a conscience issue. And why did it become a conscience issue? Because of the unity of the church around the teachings of Jesus. Then in the year 375, Emperor Valentinian made exposure a capital offense. You could lose your life if you took a child outside the city wall and left it, or if you took it to the forest. When the law of Christ informs an individual or a city or a nation's conscience, things begin to change. Now, Jesus' single new command, his covenant command, was so powerful and so ahead of its time, it never has an expiration date. There is no shelf life on the law of Christ. We are forever and ever to do for others what Christ has done for us. And that kind of morality is to inform our conscience at all levels. That is why the church is such an important entity. Our responsibility is to be salt and light, and we are to be the conscience of a nation. Now, when I say that, I know when I say that, conscience of a nation, you're like, you see, that's the problem. Christians just stick their nose in there, and they make all kinds of trouble. I'm not, there's a right way and a wrong way to be the conscience of a nation. And I would venture to say that in years past, there have been things that the church has done to try to be the conscience of a nation where we misstepped. But I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't at least try. We are to be the conscience of a nation. But it's also why we cannot be divided, especially not over political issues and political parties and candidates that are going to come and go, that are going to change over time. 
We must figure out how to be one and G, as Jesus prayed that we would be one in spite of our political differences, which leads me to the third part of our template, which is uh, we've got the law of Christ, which informs our conscience, and into an informed conscience, we are to incorporate knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge and wisdom. And here's why that's important. One of the great advantages that we have in the human, as, as the human race is that we are able to collect information record that information, and pass that on to the next generation. Let me put it in perspective for you like this. I have owned several dogs in my life. I've had puppies. Not one time have I ever had a puppy walk into my house and go, I got the whole potty training thing figured out. Because my mama taught me all about potty training. I know I'm supposed to go wee-wee outside, right? Like I, I know that's what I'm supposed to do. No. No, we have to, we got to entice, we got to give treats, we got to, you know, you, you, you got to teach the dog, you have to house train the dog that it has to go outside because nobody's ever taught it that. It's got to learn that. Um, because of writing, because we've, we've been able to record things, which is just great, you know, think about the technology when we figured out, oh, we can write this down. Humanity was able to go from one generation to the next and pass on the things that it had learned. So one generation, as we go from one generation to the next, each generation gets a little bit smarter because it's able to, to add to it the, the, the wisdom and knowledge of the previous generation. And so in the 21st century, as we think about what it looks like to live out a kingdom ethic, we should add to our informed conscience the knowledge of science, the knowledge from psychology, and the wisdom that comes from understanding how we're made, who, who made us, and how the world works. Let me, let me put it another way to you. <laughs> um, if somebody asks you, where do babies come from? That's a question you want to get, right? Where do babies come from? How you answer that question is going to depend on the age level and maturity level and understanding of the person who asked the question. If a four-year-old asks you, where do babies come from, you're going to answer that question differently, right? You're not going to give them all the information. They can't handle all the information. You're not going to lie to them, but you're going you're to leave some things out because they don't need all that information. However, if a 15-year-old comes along and says, where do babies come from, you may want to run to your, your bedroom and lock the door. You can't do that. You know, you, you need to answer the question. You may want to do that, but you're going to answer that question from an entirely different perspective, and you're probably going to give them more information because they know more. They have more wisdom and knowledge. They have more life experience and education, and they can handle more than the other. So what I'm saying is it depends on the one who asks. In a very similar way, God accommodates to the, past, to the capacity of his people. Okay, God accommodates to the capacity of his people. When you see God in Genesis, what you see is God accommodating to, a, to the capacity of an ancient people who are pre-science, they're pre-Tylenol, they're, they're, you know, they're um, pre-penicillin, pre warm shower. They haven't experienced any of those things, okay? And then when Jesus comes to earth, he says, the kingdom of God has come, and I am here as God to dwell with you. He explains God, and he does so in a way that the Old Testament does not. Now, why does he do that? He does that because things have changed. People's capacity to understand things have changed. 
And so with each generation, our wisdom and knowledge increases and God's ability to help us to understand different things and how the world works increases as well. And as Christians, we should be on the forefront of everything. Christians are way often reactive. We're way too often reactive. We should be on the forefront of, of music and technology. We should be on the forefront of video and, and you know, drama and all that stuff. We should be on the forefront of science, on the forefront of, of uh, uh, space exploration. We should be on the forefront of everything. We shouldn't wait and respond. We should be the ones out there trying to figure stuff out. Uh, I heard a guy one time at, at Johnson at homecoming, he, called, he was calling for people to get into the science field. He said, we need you. We need you and we need your worldview in the science field. We should never resist science or discovery of any kind. We should be the most curious people on earth because our faith is not tethered to an interpretation of some text somewhere. So we shouldn't be afraid that if somebody comes up with new information, we're gonna be wrong. No, your faith is tethered to an event in history. That never changes. Jesus will have always died on a cross and risen from the dead, and no matter what they find in science, that doesn't change. So when they find something in science and they say, hey, here's a new discovery that we've made, we don't have to be afraid of that. I've seen Christians from time to time want to go after science. They kind of want to conflict with science and fight with it, and, you know, science is bad. Why in the world would anybody do that? We should incorporate into our conscience the knowledge that has been handed to us by the people who have come before us. Knowledge and wisdom combined with an informed conscience, that is what we should use and leverage to determine which policies, which platforms, which legislation we support. So just to go through it again, the law of Christ, if you're a Jesus follower, that is non-negotiable. Law of Christ, we got to be united on that. Informed conscience, over time, as you learn more about following Jesus, your conscience is going to be shaped by the law of Christ. Then you come into knowledge and wisdom. This is where we start to learn things. This is, you know, somewhat intuitive. Here's how I would explain that. If you're, one of your kids gets sick, you don't call me. You get on the phone and you call a doctor, right? Brett doesn't know how to fix this sick baby. He doesn't know the first thing about medicine. You call somebody who has studied medicine. Once upon a time when your child got sick, you called a priest, and the priest came in, and he, he knew there was a time when the priest in, this, in the village was the richest and the smartest guy uh, in the whole village, which ain't true in this village, I can promise you that. But, but, but that's just who they called, right? They just called the priest because he kind of did everything. Well, you don't do that now. If your child is sick, you, you're smart enough to know now there are guys that have been trained with medicine to know how to fix my sick kid. And so I'm going to call them. And I might call Brett and ask him to pray, but I don't even, half the time I don't even need to pray because if they get penicillin or if they get a, a, an antibiotic, what am I looking for? Um, antibiotic or something like that and it fixes them up real quick. I mean, Science knows, has, has helped us to come to an understanding of, hey, that's what you do when you have this particular sickness or this particular illness. Um, and I'm willing to pray for your child, absolutely, but I'm, I can't do anything medically to help them. But here's the thing. When it comes to this idea of policy, platform, and legislation, there is always going to be some disagreement among Christians around policy, platform, and legislation, and that's really what this series is all about. But the reason we are always going to disagree is because 
Where you stand depends upon where you sit. Where you take a stand depends upon where you sit. There's something called Miles' Law. Rufus Miles uh, served in the uh, uh, Eisenhower and the Kennedy and the Johnson administrations, and he came up with Miles' Law. And basically what it is is our cultural context, which is where we sit, determines our perspective, which is where we stand. Who you are related to, how much money you have, what kind of job you have, your cultural context, where you sit, determines in large part your perspective in life. It determines what you see, how you experience, how you see it, and how you interpret it. And this is true for all of us. And this is why you don't see any conflict between your faith and your politics. It's why you sit here this morning or you sat here last week or you watched online and you heard Brett talk and you're like, see, so-and-so needed to hear this today. I wish so-and-so had heard this today because here's what you're thinking. You're thinking my views and my Jesus line up perfectly and there's nothing wrong with the way I see all this, but boy, so-and-so really needed to hear it. No, no. We've all got work to do when it comes to this. We all think that our views line up perfectly. That's why some people say, you know what? My, I'm 100% in on Jesus. That's why I line up perfectly with the Republican Party, 100%. And somebody in the Democratic Party says, I'm perfectly into Jesus, and that's why everything I believe lines up perfectly with the Democratic Party, because 100%, that's what I believe. And, and, you know, we're on either sides of that going, no, dude, that's not right. See, your political views weren't shaped in a vacuum. And pausing to recognize this and pausing long enough to incorporate this into your thinking is what it means to be mature. And for heaven's sake, can we agree on one thing? We could use a little more maturity these days. Am I right? Golly. Pausing to recognize this is the way forward. It's how extreme positions move to the middle. If they're mature, if they're mature, they move to the middle and they understand each other. Now, let me be clear. I am not suggesting that we all get in a circle and we just sway back and forth and sing kumbaya and start our own political party and it's all going to be, you know, like dropping acid. Okay, that's not what I'm suggesting. (laughs) Not that I know what dropping acid's like, but... Like I said, so you just never know what's coming out. That's not in my notes. I don't know where that came from. As I said a minute ago in that fourth line, there will always be disagreement around policy platform and legislation. Right? We're not always going to agree on that stuff. And that's okay. If we are mature enough to not let it divide us, and if we are mature enough to not let it get in the way, if, well, if we're willing to have a better conversation, Right? There's nothing wrong with, with disagreeing on things, but we should be mature enough to be able to have a, an adult conversation and say, I, I don't understand why you think that. You've got a perspective I don't have. Just talk to me for a little bit. I want to I just hear your perspective. And at the end of it, you may, you know, you may think, man, that's, that, that's so far away from where I am. But you can still be respectful. You can still be mature. It's a step toward unity in spite of diversity. Political views and values are shaped by a variety of things, most of which we have very little control over. Um, 
And if we would just acknowledge this and take a deep breath, we, we could all learn something this morning. We might not change what we believe, but we would begin to understand why other people believe what they do and believe the way they do. And, and, they won't experience, and then we won't experience division in the church. Um, here are some of the things that go into your political views. Here's what makes you think the way you think. Um, where we live, how we were raised, how you were educated, if you were educated, what we've been told, what we've seen, what we've experienced, what we've seen other people experience. Those are just some of the things, the political dynamics that go into making up our political viewpoints. Now think about your, your parents' political views. Right? If, we were to ask, if I were to ask you, why does your dad hold the political view he holds, you might talk a little bit about his theology, but chances are good, not very much. What you're going to talk about is the way he was raised. You're going to talk about what, he, what, what his influences were. You're going to talk about his parents. You're going to talk about whether or not he had money growing up or didn't have any money. So, you know, just in reference to my own father, one time I, my dad and I are on different sides politically, and boy, that's a lot of fun when I go home sometimes, but... Um, but I asked him one time, because he, he made the comment, he said, I will always vote for that political, for that political party. I said, Dad, why, why do you, why, why? He said, because I promised my grandfather that I would always vote for that political party. I said, you know, and it's, I'm trying to be a respectful son, you know, I'm trying to, but my mind just wants to explode. It's just going crazy. And I'm like, I said, Dad, do you understand how uneducated that is? You can't be like that. You can't, you gotta think for yourself. <laughs> but he held certain views and he held certain opinions because of the way he was raised and because of the influences in his life. I got way away from where I was supposed to be. Okay, so, but what if we were to step back and view all this a little bit differently and not necessarily change what you believe or change your political views or your candidates or anything like that, but to just see it a little bit differently because where you stand depends upon where you sit. And recognizing this will allow us to open our minds and our hands and our hearts. And when we open our minds and our hands and our hearts, things begin to change. And I'm just telling you, your political views may begin to change a little bit, and you're like, oh no, I can't change them. No, open your mind, open your heart, open your hands. And the goal isn't for me to change any political view you've got. My goal is to get you to understand that we in here have got to be one when it comes to the law of Christ. That is non-negotiable. We can disagree on policies and platforms, but when it comes to loving one another as Christ loved us, we do not negotiate that. That is the law of Christ for us. The law of Christ, informed conscience, knowledge and wisdom, policy, platforms, and legislation. Now let me take what little time I've got left and, and just make a few suggestions about how we do this. And this isn't complicated, and this isn't new, and this isn't going to knock your socks off, but sometimes we just have to say the obvious so that we can remember to do it. For, for, so three things, three L words, real quick. Begin to listen, and specifically, listen to people who don't experience the world the way you do. Listen to people who don't experience the world the way you do. Black and white, gay and straight, Christian and atheist, ministers, non-ministers, 
military people and those who don't like the military, new citizens and old citizens, non-citizens and old citizens. Listen to people with different experiences than you. Number two, once you start to listen, learn something. Well, I listen, but I'm not going to change. No, that, no, learn. Learn. Listen, our faith is tethered to an event in history. It's okay to learn new things, and it's okay to embrace new knowledge. Be curious. Sam Harris is a prolific, um, influential atheist. He is probably the, um, he's probably at the pinnacle right now when it comes to atheism as their leader and thought leader and um, he, he's really smart. I would not want to debate Sam Harris. He's really smart. But one thing Sam Harris says that I agree with is we should pay attention to the frontiers of our ignorance. We should pay attention to the frontiers of our ignorance. You say, Brett, what does that mean? That means that Brett doesn't just read books that he agrees with. That means Brett doesn't just follow people on Twitter that he agrees with. That means that when Brett encounters an opposing viewpoint, I sit and listen to it and try to understand where they're coming from. I want to pay attention to the frontiers of my ignorance. There are things that I don't know, and I want to know what those things are. See, when you don't know what you don't know, you're dangerous. Right? So just pay attention. Uh, I had a professor in college one time that said, boys, if you, when you get a periodical and you look at the table of contents, the article that you would be tempted to read last, read that article first. And he said, by reading that article first, you're going to learn more in that article than you would read in the rest of the book. And he was exactly right. I do that to this day. If I get a magazine and I'm going to read the whole thing, I start with the article that least affects me or least appeals to me because that's the one I find teaches me the most. Pay attention to the frontiers of your ignorance. Be a student, not just a critic. You're an amazing critic. You don't even need to be trained to be a critic, right? You can be watching a program on television. Somebody says something that you disagree with, and you hit the mute button, and you start preaching. And your poor spouse and your kids have to listen to you go on a rant. And you know what? I can promise you that as you're going on that rant, they're not sitting over there thinking, yeah, Dad, more of that. Yeah, give us some more. No, what they're thinking is, could you, could we, could you maybe turn the TV back on? Because we've heard this, right? And, and you just think you know so much. But here's the thing. You need to stop and listen and not just be a critic. You need to be a student. Otherwise, you will discount every piece of information that does not fit perfectly within your flawed worldview, And if we don't listen, if we don't learn from each other, we discount the things that we need to fit into that worldview. And and when we quit learning, bad things happen. So let's land the plane. Democrats, your Republican brothers and sisters are not crazy. They just see the world differently than you. Republicans, your Democrat brothers and sisters are not crazy. They stand where they stand because of where they sit and the influences that they've had in their life. And I talked about this last week. Nobody's crazy. We just sit in different places. And when we say things like, well, I don't understand how somebody could ever think something as stupid as that. Well, what you just did is you just admitted your own ignorance. I don't understand. And it becomes incumbent upon you to try to understand 
where they're coming from. There's stuff going on out in Portland I don't understand. But I would love to sit down with one of those guys that are all dressed in black with the helmets and breaking windows and all that stuff. I would love to sit down with one of them. And here's what I would say. Help, what's your goal? Help me understand what, where does all this passion or drive or what drives it? I want to understand you. I don't understand you. I don't understand why you're doing that. But why are you doing that? The third thing is this, L word, love. Never burn a relational bridge over a temporary political view. How stupid is that? Because the you beside you is more precious to God than your potentially flawed view, a view that you changed 10 years ago. I said this last week. Some of the things that you believe are true today, you didn't believe were true 10 years ago. And things that you hold dear today, 10 years from now, you may be in a completely different place as you get new information and as you get a better education. So why in the world would you allow something that is temporary to come between you and a relationship? Never burn a relationship over a political view. They may do it, but don't you be the one that starts that fire. Because while you were both sinners, Christ died for both of you. Let's listen, let's learn, and let's love. You say, Brett, this is so naive. Really? Is it? Because once upon a time, there was a group of people that were being crushed between the, the temple and the Roman Empire. And all I can tell you is that the, the great Roman emperors that thought they were everything at the, at the time are nothing more than a footnote in the history of the life of Jesus Christ who changed the world. That is not naivety. Kingdoms come, kingdoms go. Empires rise, empires fall. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And he, he was absolutely true. Look at us, here we are today. Our responsibility is to show, especially now, to show our divided nation and our divided world what it looks like to disagree politically, to love unconditionally, and to pray for unity. And at the cross, we lost our right to do anything other than that. Let's listen, let's learn, let's love. Let me pray for you. Father, our world is sick and we need you. We just confess it, we need you. I think some of us are scared. I think others of us are just fed up. Um, but Lord, we need to take a measured approach. We need to uh, be mature. We, we need to keep the law of Christ ever preeminent in our thinking, and that needs to inform our conscience. We need to take the knowledge and wisdom we're getting, and that should inform how we look at policies and, and legislation. Uh, Father, don't ever let us put our political views in front of our Jesus because that's just where we're going wrong. But Jesus is everything to us. He saved us. He's adopted us as sons and daughters. And so, Father, this morning, as broken, flawed, sinful individuals, we just pause before you, tell you that we stand in need of your grace and forgiveness. And we are so thankful for Jesus. May he be the one who influences the way we go through the next several months and even years. It's in Jesus' name we pray.